Welcome to the HR Chat Podcast, bringing the best of the HR and talent communities to you. Welcome to another episode of the HR Chat Show. I'm your host today, Bill Bannum. And in this episode, we're going to consider why the best HR practices are based on cold, hard data and how HR pros can better leverage analytics to make informed decisions. And I'm absolutely delighted to say that I've got the awesome Matthew Hamilton returning to the show. Matthew is head of HR strategy and people analytics over at Protective Life. My conversation with him in 2021, I just shared this with Matthew just before we hit record, was one of the most popular of the year. I think it was in the top five. And that's because he's a very interesting chap with lots of interesting things to say. Matthew, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me again. It's my pleasure to have you back on. I know that this is going to be a, a fun and edu- educational conversation because we've had other conversations in the past. Um, so I'm looking forward to this. Let's get straight into it. We're not going to do the usual first question, Matthew, which is uh, tell us all about yourself. Oh, no. Instead, I would encourage our listeners to check out the other episode that we did with you on, on this on this pod. And uh, instead, we're going to get straight into the hard hitting questions. Um, firstly, <laughs> firstly, Matthew, what, what, why is it important for HR to have data driven and analytical skills? I mean, it almost sounds like a question that shouldn't be asked in 2022, I think. But um, you know, wh- why is it? And also maybe as part of the answer, can you give examples of how people analytics can actually help or enhance the HR function? Yeah, no, um, definitely. And, and I agree. It's like you would think that it shouldn't be discussed still, that it sort of has become the norm, but it but it really hasn't. I even recently um, did sort of a, a retrospective with our HR leadership team at Protective and and um, because we, we do an annual um, people analytics maturity assessment. So I was sharing the results of that back with everybody. Uh, along with some uh, some other literature, some pieces from other research that has been done. And um, one of the things even that internally, not this wasn't coming from the external research, internally uh, a comment was made about focusing attention on uh, when when recruiting HR practitioners, not just people analytics, but HR in general, um, focusing on data and analytical skills. And, and so that was pointed out. And, that, and I actually went back and looked at all of the requisitions that we had posted in the last year for HR roles. And we'll, we'll say less than a majority of them had any mention of data analytics in them. I said, no, that kind of seems like a miss. Like, uh, you know, we've identified this as important, but, but um, haven't put that into practice yet fully. So, uh, you know, it's it's still a journey for a lot of companies. But uh, to to really get to your question, you know, why why is it important? I think um, if I had to sum it up, kind of a short way that I, I describe it to people sometimes is being uh, data driven, being analytical. It it helps you be able to focus on what you know, what you actually know, versus what you think you know. Um, and and unfortunately, the people who aren't data driven, they think they know something, and they may go down a path, but they may be right, but they may not be. Uh, and, you know, an, an, an analogy that gets used a lot um, by, by people in the uh, people analytics space is the, the idea of peeling back the layers of an onion. You know, so um, you're asking questions of you know, what's going on in the company, how is performance, what is retention, things like that. You know, you're asking questions and, and good questions and good analysis. Now, they actually don't often lead to answers, they, they rather they lead to better questions. And as you keep peeling those layers of the onion back, it helps leaders and HR practitioners you know, really focus on what's important, um, ignore what's relevant or what's less relevant, uh, and ultimately gain a deeper 
uh, understanding or insight of the employees and the business. And, you know, an, an example right now is kind of very timely right now is this whole idea of the great resignation. Uh, you know, voluntary quits are going up pretty much across the board for most companies. Um, maybe not 100% true, right? But it's a, it's a very prevalent trend right now uh, in the workplace, um, in the job market. You know, and if you think about that very outer layer of the onion, you know, a company, they may know what their uh, resignation rate is and how it's changed, you know, but but is it up for all of your employee populations? In, in most cases, I would guess probably not, you know, and beyond that, you know, why is it up or flat um, for any given population? Is that bad? Um, how does it compare to your peers? You know, so asking good questions and diving into the data can really help uncover those more nuanced insights, you know, rather than just a blanket statement of resignations are up. We'll be right back after this message from today's sponsoring partner. Are you struggling to attract talent during this great resignation? Appcast is a global provider of recruitment, advertising technology, and enterprise managed services for talent acquisition. The company is a pioneer of programmatic job advertising, which uses clever algorithms to help employers increase engagement with qualified candidates by showing people the right job ads at the right time in the right places. Learn more and request a demo at appcast.io. Appcast, job advertising made simple. And yet resignations are up, Matthew, uh, significantly across the US and elsewhere. Um, uh, you know, November, for example, was the highest number ever, I believe, at, two, at four and a half million uh, resignations. And we're going to talk a bit about that later on in, in a roundabout manner. Um, but before we get there, do you find that the HR community is still a bit hesitant then, given what you've said so far? Do you think it's still a bit assessment of, of employee performance on on cold hard data you know yeah i i do my best not to ever say that those, those words putting the human into human resources um without you know because i don't want to cringe however is is there an element of that is, is that is that why there's still re resistance um because basing it purely on data maybe you you, you miss other signals yeah i you know so the idea of hesitancy i I would say this is kind of a cop-out answer, but I'd say it depends. You know, it, it still depends a lot on a, a company's culture and the, the performance culture that's developed or that exists. Um, and then also on each um, HR practitioner and each leader's personal comfort with data. Um, so, you know, it's hard to make an across-the-board statement, but I, I think, you know, part of the challenge is that uh, a lot of individual contributors in particular, in, in some cases, even managerial roles, but a lot of people's work activities aren't really effectively measured. Um, or in some cases, if they are measured, the, the expectations um, standards aren't set very well. Um, you know, different, different functional roles are measured better than others. You know, somebody working in a, in a call center, for example, probably is measured um, better than, than some from the get-go but um, but not not always, um, you know, and then making the problem, the, the, make, making the challenge more is, you know, measuring on outcomes alone is is good. Um, but if you take it to the extreme, it could also lead to problems. It, it's also important to measure on behaviors. So I, I was just reading an article recently and it was using a case study of a, a sales leadership um, or, um, role and, you know, sales is one area that could, in, in a lot of companies, could be measured um, very well on outcomes. 
uh, you, you make a sale and there's a value to it or you don't make a sale, right? Um, but but like I said, if taken to the extreme, that can lead to problems. And this, this case study was talking about a sales manager uh, who had been promoted into the, the sales management role after having been an outstanding salesperson, individual contributor themselves, um, but wasn't doing the behaviors necessary of sales management, coaching the team, um, coaching the, the, the other salespeople on their performance, and in effect kind of stepped down and, and started selling as a manager. So, so that sales manager's team's um, measured outcomes of performance were outstanding, but it's because that sales manager was doing the, the brunt of the work themselves and selling. And that's not really sustainable. And that's not what you want a sales manager to be doing. So the behavior was off. The outcome might've been okay, but the behavior was off. Um, it, one thing that I, you, you got me thinking about with you know this idea of expectations not being um, communicated well, it makes me think back uh, to long, long ago in my career. I'm, people analytics is kind of my third career. Um, my first career, I was, an, I was a, an aviator in the Army. I flew helicopters in the Army. And the Army had a, a framework that was, that was pretty uh, uh, used pretty broadly in a training context. And this framework of, of communicating the task conditions and standards for anything to be performed uh, in, in a training scenario. Um, so what is the task? What are you trying to do? What are the conditions, the, the situation? What are you given? Um, and then what are the standard of, you know, the minimum standard of performance that you're expected to achieve? And, and it worked really well to, you know, objectively define what training performance was, was needed, um, but also left a good degree of subjective assessment capability for the evaluator um, because it, it removed that ambiguity of what was expected, but ultimately it was still a person making an evaluation. So, um, you know, that was, that was kind of an interesting way to think about it that, I wonder what companies could could maybe draw from that to better communicate what the expectations are of people, um, understanding that there's still some level of subjective assessment in there. Let's just narrow down that assessment for for a moment, and, and we'll just you know we'll, we'll bring it back to to the facts, to the to the stats, to the data. As as head of HR strategy and people analytics at Protected Life. What do you see as as the most important metrics that you look at when assessing employee and team performance? We're going to talk about engagement shortly, okay? Uh, in 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 the in the context of retaining employees and the great resignation and whatnot. But you know, in terms of measuring performance, what what are the what are those one, two, three most important metrics? And 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 have those metrics changed, or maybe the weighting of their importance has that changed as a result of the pandemic? Yeah. Um, well, so so I tend to look a lot more at team performance than individual performance. Uh, thinking back to one of our prior conversations, my analogy of uh, the the forest versus the trees. I tend to look at the forest, not not the individual trees themselves, most of the time. Um, and and I think what's you know what's important for any company at any given time uh, should be somewhat unique to them and their business context and and the needs of their business, <clears throat> even within the company, you know, different metrics may be relevant to different functions. It's, it's, it's rare where you can say there's one metric across the board that applies to everyone in every company. Um, um, You know, thinking in terms of the great resignation right now, if, if you're measuring all your managers on what's their retention, but you have areas that historically and currently don't have challenges of retention, then that might be a meaningless performance metric for them as a, as a manager or, or less relevant performance metric. Um, you know, so I think the, the real important thing is the important thing is to look at 
uh, how those given metrics, whatever any company and uh, um, you know business unit within a company is important to them, understanding how they've changed over time um, when compared against themselves, um, how they compare against their relevant internal benchmarks. So what are the, the orgs that are like them within the company? And then how has their change compared um, to their benchmarks changes? So they can see, you know, our resignations, for example, sticking with that example, maybe going up uh, across the board, but are they going up as fast in one area as another area, for example? And and to, you know, the last part of your question there, you know, how um, has the pandemic affected these? I, I, I think it should, right? And not even, <clears throat> excuse me, not even just the pandemic, but over time, relevant metrics should change to some degree, you know, not completely, but they should change, change to some degree over time as the, the context of the business changes and the needs change. Um, and maybe more so, you know, during something, you know, a big disruptive thing like the pandemic might might force a little bit more changes over time. Um, but I, I think that's kind of how everybody trends to some degree. Okay, thank you. Um, let's continue down the line of the, the conversation around the Great Resignation because you know it's a pretty <laughs> it's a pretty big deal. Um, can you can you now share any best practices for using data to better listen to and support employees? during this new normal, which includes the great resignation, Matthew. And, and what are the best ways or best approaches that you would advocate in terms of measuring the engagement of, of new hires, specifically new hires, it, it, with the with the goal of maximizing uh, retention rates? And also, I'm sorry to make this question so long, yeah. but also as part, part of the answer, where, where does a, a data specialist like yourself come in to, to prevent that attrition of employees? Yeah, yeah. So this is kind of multiple parts of that. Uh, you know, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll answer what I can. I've actually, uh, uh, at some point in time, if you want to dig deeper into the idea of engagement, I've got somebody on my team who's much smarter in the area than I am. But um, so, so I'll give I'll give kind of the, the top line answer to that. You know, I think some best practices right now is listen frequently. So whatever your company's in listening program is, surveying program, do it frequently. So, you know, the annual survey just doesn't cut it anymore. Too much is changing too fast that listening to your employees once a year basically provides you very, very little value uh, other than what was going on at the moment the survey was given. But that doesn't necessarily reflect what's going on uh, uh, across time. Um, so, you know, listen more frequently, I, I think quarterly at a minimum. Um, I was reading something recently um, about Microsoft, their employee listening. And granted, they're a bigger company, but they survey, um, I, I think it's that each employee gets gets surveyed once a quarter, but they're surveying a, a small slice of them every day. So they're, and they're big enough that they can see changes in, in patterns. They've got a large enough um, uh, representative sample to, to do that every, every day. Um, so they can really very quickly understand when something is changing directions. Um, other best practices, I think, design, design your questions thoughtfully uh, and to be actionable. So it's too, you know, survey, solu surveying solutions programs out there are very easy uh, and quick where you can turn around and generate a survey very, very quickly. Um, but the questions aren't always the best if you don't put the thought into, well, what is this question asking? What is it really asking? And ultimately, is it actionable? Because if you get some insights, but you can't do anything about them, then it's kind of, you know, pointless. Um, in, um, other best practices, I think, it, you know, you should adjust your questions some over time to focus on the here and now as things change, you, you can update your questions. 
But then you also want to keep some consistent over time, some kind of evergreen questions so that you can see what are those trends that are emerging. So, you know, if if there's something that's going on, you want to understand it, it right now, it might not necessitate changing the question itself, the core question, um, but rather either add another question or pr provide some free text response um, option um, because you want to have something consistent over time so that you can see how things are trending and changing. And then uh, maybe, maybe the last best practice, and this is a hard one, this is a really hard one, um, is once you've done the, the surveying, helping to translate the results into a, into a so what story for leaders uh, and help them focus on what to do. So if you just turn raw data results back to, to leaders, it's really hard for them to make sense of what does this even mean? I, I got a 90% favorable on this question. What does that mean? Is that good? Is it bad? You know, you can get, you can give some things to understand some context. Is it higher or lower than it was last time? Is it higher or lower than peers in the company? But still, that's still hard to say. Is that good? Is it bad? And then ultimately, what should I do about it? What should I focus on? Um, you know, the, um, the rise in HR software solutions where, where companies can run their own employee listening programs. Uh, you know, there's a lot more of those, which it sort of democratizes that capability. It lets companies run those um, you know, much more faster because they control it versus uh, an older school model of hiring a, an external consultancy to come in and run the survey. And you have much less control. Uh, in many cases, it costs a lot more. The advantage that that does bring, though, is is in a lot of cases, those those external consultants are experts at reading the tea leaves of the, the data um, from the survey results and understanding what it means and helping talk leaders through that story and understanding what's really, um, really impacting it um, is you know, some stuff to focus on. Um, I've been rambling here for a second, so you got to refresh me what the second part of that question was now. <laughs> Um, it was a good answer, though. It was a good answer. Uh, I, I mean, I think in a way you've kind of covered a lot of it. Um, I, I was I was asking you also about the, the best ways to to use the data to sort of um, nib in the bud, if you like, um, the, those those leaks um, out, out of the company. That those those particularly those new hires who, if the data was interpreted in the right ways and, and presented in the right ways to the powers that be within an organization, could mean that. Um, you, you stopped. Uh, you stop the process of losing uh, you know, X percentage of your, of your new hires because you, you you get a chance to see how they're how they're performing, how they're engaging. Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. That this was is the second part. Yeah, this is something that's on our on our mind actually right now too. Um, so that going, idea of going back to listening frequently. So the first time that you survey an employee shouldn't be after they've hit the six month mark or the. 12 month mark or something. Um, the, the new hire attrition problem is already existing before they even get to the point to ask them something if you're waiting that long. So you should be surveying your new hires um, very soon. It, depending upon how companies do onboarding, in some cases you can even survey people before they've set foot in the door. If you, if you do sort of a, an experiential pre-boarding um, process, uh, if, if you're, if you're you know, taking those, those initial steps with them, if you're really treating that onboarding is starting upon when they accept an offer, even they even though they haven't started yet. If you're going through those pre-boarding steps, you can understand how that's going before they've even set foot in the door and adjust course so that their day one experience is good. Uh, you, should be, you should be seeing how their experience went on day one and week one and you know the first few weeks. Uh, 
you know, first impressions are a big, big thing. If somebody walks in and they have a very bad day one experience, right? Their manager forgot that they were starting today. Uh, their desk's not ready. They don't have a computer yet, but they're expected to get on and, you know, complete all kinds of forms and things, but they don't have a computer to do it on. Like those are all her bad starting experiences. And it, it's really hard to overcome the feeling that that creates in someone. Um, you know, so the, the ideal situation is don't do things like that, right? And when you onboard people, don't onboard them in a poor fashion like that. But if it's going to happen, if at least if you're doing early listening after the end of the first day, the first week, you can identify those problem areas much more quickly and address them. And so, so our strategy for this, we kind of, uh, you know, approach kind of from two different lenses. So one lens is the very fast surveying of individual employees. And that is to identify where those problem areas are. And that way managers or HR business partners can go address them very quickly and fix the problem that might be emerging um, for a brand new hire. The kind of the second lens is the, the, the longer term onboarding of, you know, they've been here a month, three months, six months, and understanding how that process is going. And at that point, we're looking less at the individual um, and more in the aggregate to understand, okay, the practices, uh, you know, sort of our culture and practices of new hires, how is that working in aggregate for us? Sort of a, you know, a different lens to look at at each different point in time, if that helps at all. It absolutely does. Uh, I sit here and take notes when I'm when I'm interviewing you, Matthew. Uh, hey, listen, we are uh, we're almost out of time already, I'm afraid. But uh, before we do wrap up, two more questions for you. Um, so I'm going to challenge you to answer this one in 90 seconds or less. Okay. Okay. So it's, it's a big question. Um, 90 seconds or less. Uh, but just to kind of excite our our listeners before we do wrap up, and that's. Um, can, can you can you share some of your predictions for the evolution of people analytics over the next 12 to 24 months? Well, what types of new processes might we see? Um, what about user adoption? Is you know, what, what those rates going to look like? Uh, any any companies out there doing exciting things because they're getting more out of their data, which is going to be copied by other organizations over the next year to two? Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of folks who make annual predictions in January. Um, when we're recording this. And, and so I won't pretend to have a crystal ball any better than theirs. One thing I'm really curious about, um, and I don't know if there's ever a way to actually see if this comes true or not, but is, is what the success rate for new people analytics implementations are and how that may change. Um, you know, as a, as a practice, people analytics seems to have shifted along the technology adoption curve, right? So we've, we've moved beyond the innovators and early adopters and are maybe a little bit into the, the early majority. Um, but as more of them and then some of the late majority starts to implement people analytics because they're hearing um, or reading that this is something you should be doing, um, but they they enter into it without fully understanding the investment, the effort, the time that it's going to take. Um, you know, I wonder if too many are going to rush in too fast and ill-prepared, not do it well, ultimately fail, um, and then draw the incorrect conclusion that people analytics just doesn't provide value and we're going to keep on doing things the same old, same way. You know, I, I don't know if there's any way, you know, 12, 24 months from now to know if that actually happened or not or to what degree it happened. Um, but it's an area that I'm, I'm curious about and, and would be concerned for some companies who, who enter into it um, with a, the wrong frame of mind. Okay, there you go, listeners. You have been warned. Um, Matthew, before we do wrap up, uh, the final question for you is how can our listeners connect with you? So email, LinkedIn, whatever you want to do there. And also how can they learn more 
about things happening over at Protective Life? Yeah, so I mean, the easiest way to connect with me is is on LinkedIn, um, um, Matthew Hamilton and Protective Life. I'm the only one. Um, that's probably the easiest way. Um, I, I would say, you know, um, a couple things to to learn more if if people about people analytics in general for people getting into the space. I'll, I'll throw out two two book recommendations. Um, one that I just came across, uh, The Data Driven Leader, uh, by Jenny Dearborn and David Swanson. Um, great intro, not some, not as much for the people analytics practitioner, but, but for the, um, CHRO type level or senior HR partners, or even business leaders trying to get them comfortable with the the whole concept of using data. Um, and then second is sort of to, to me has become the Bible of people analytics, um, excellence in people analytics, uh, by Jonathan Farrar and David Green. Um, they've published a lot of content over time and then finally collected this into a, 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 a true volume of people analytics um, it, that came out, uh, it was published last summer. So it was after the last time you and I had spoke. So those are two good, good entry points for folks. Um, and then, and then for my company, Protective Life, um, you know, we, we are a hundred and let's see, what are we now? 17 year old, um, financial services institution. So if, if anybody out there is, I'll do the, the shameless plug. If anybody is in the market for, um, financial solutions to protect their investment, uh, their, um, uh, retirement interests and their life insurance needs or asset protections, um, protective.com is our company. Wonderful. Well, that just leaves me to say for today. Um, thank you again, Matthew, for joining me uh, on, on another episode of the HR Chat Show. I do feel like uh, this is going to become at least an annual thing with you and I. Um, but for now, thank you so much for being my guest. Thanks for having me. And listeners, as always, until next time, happy working. Thank you for listening to the HR Chat Podcast, brought to you by the HR Gazette.